0: Hello, everybody. This is Richard Harris, and I want to take a few minutes uh, today to Um, share with you some of Andrew Womack's Biblical Worldview series uh, on the Truth and Liberty show. You know, uh, biblical worldview is a critically important subject. George Barna has done surveys uh, showing that in America today, only 4% of the population has a biblical worldview. You know, Christ has commanded us to go and make disciples of all nations. How can we say that we are doing that when our country only has a 4% biblical worldview? View. America, the most Christian nation in the history of the world. Now, only 4% of its citizens uh, view the world through a biblical lens. Um, Andrew is, uh, has created four installments of this product, and there are more to come. But uh, we have available today foundational issues, uh, socialism, racism, and sexuality, and there's more to come. Alex McFarland has headed this project. He's one of our board members and a host of the Truth and Liberty Show. And this material in the biblical worldview Series is really fantastic. I believe in my heart that every church in America needs this product. Every church in America needs to be teaching this material, and uh, and so we want to begin by sharing it with you uh, on this special occasion, uh, January second. Uh, our offices are closed here at the ministry, so this is a pre-recorded Truth and Liberty show, and you're going to be uh, uh, receiving now um, an episode. The first one is by B- uh, Bob McEwen, former congressman, uh, where he he's going to be, both of the episodes we're going to share with you today are on the subject of socialism and why socialism is not a biblical biblical system for society or government. The first installment is by uh, Congressman Bob McEwen. And Bob, I tell you what, he has a revelation on free enterprise that is uh, stronger than anybody I've ever heard. He's able to teach it more clearly and concisely than anyone I've ever heard. He's got a video out called Politics Easy as Pie that shows you how free enterprise is critical for freedom. And it's an, incredible teaching, and Bob's gonna be talking in this episode about what is free enterprise and why it is a good thing. After Bob, now that episode's about 30 minutes, and after that, we're gonna have Bishop E.W. Jackson's section, and Bishop Jackson is gonna be talking about welfare and why welfare is not a biblical system, and he ought to know because he was raised in welfare. He overcame it. He was in a foster care uh, system and everything else, and uh, he's a, a powerful man of God, and we'd love to share his perspective with you. So I'll be back after all of the after all both of these episodes and uh, close this out for you today. But I encourage you to to grab a notepad, take notes and enjoy these two segments from Andrew Womack's uh, uh, series on biblical worldview.
1: Congressman Bob McEwen has become a great friend, he and his wife, Liz. And I tell you, this man is amazing. The grasp that he has on capitalism versus socialism. I've had him share many times on politics easy as pie. It's one of the best things I've ever heard in my life. And he's gonna bring clarity to this. For, you know, many young people today think that socialism is just fine. It's because they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what socialism is. And I can promise you that Congressman Bob McEwen will be a blessing to you as he shares his insights on capitalism versus socialism.
2: have you ever wondered what socialism really means, what free enterprise really means? Well, my name is Bob McEwen, and I'm just really delighted to be a part of this Biblical Worldview series. And the thing that we're going to talk about today is socialism. And once you understand it, once you see it, you can never forget how it works. And that is, why are some nations rich and some nations are poor? Why some people are rich, why some people are poor? And I'm going to give you uh, the answer that just so many people just do not know how it works. And so in the process, let's just start with the fact that America is a nation that's very, very wealthy. Now, why? Well, have you ever uh, understood about a farmer when he has a milking stool and a milking stool has three legs on it? You know, if you take one of those legs away, the thing doesn't work. And as you'll see in this series, this biblical worldview series, that is that a biblical worldview of spiritual righteousness is essential. Now, once you have the, the spiritual values, then you have to have economic values. That's what we're gonna talk about today, socialism and free enterprise. And then you have to have political freedom. And so if you have spiritual freedom, economic freedom and political freedom, then you have what is we've been able to enjoy for 200 years in America. And that's our goal. And it has to be preserved. Otherwise it can be stolen at any moment. Uh, I use the example of economic freedom. A little five year old says to his mother, I'm fed up with this place. I'm out of here. He grabs his teddy bear, storms out of the house and the mother goes over and stands behind the curtain and watches. He's not going anyplace because he has no economic freedom. Now, if he said, oh, by the way, I stole your credit cards and took $500 and and storms out the door, then it's a different situation. So in order to be free, you have to have economic freedom otherwise he'd be as tied to that house as if he were tethered and so part of freedom is that part another part is political you know you can be a millionaire but if you're in jail you don't have any political freedom then you're not really free and then we know that people have money and they have they have uh, political freedom live in a great country but yet they're not spiritually free and so they have various addictions or their their relationships do not work well and sometimes even they end up taking their life because they do not have spiritual freedom. So all three of them are intertwined. They all three are necessary for liberty. And and then what we're gonna talk about here is the economic part and what is socialism. Now socialism is government control of the tools of production. You say, well, I've heard that. And what does that mean, the tools of production? The tools of production are the things that are necessary for us to, as we're going to learn in a little bit later, In order for us to make money, we have to do something good for someone. And the tools are what allow us to do more. If I uh, cut down a tree with a hatchet, uh, I can't cut down as many as I can with a saw. And I can't cut down as many as as with a power saw. So the tools make a difference. And if government controls the tools, then I'm at the mercy of them. And that's what socialism is, is government control of of the tools. Now, uh, a lot of places, people don't like rich people. And we're going to find out why that is in just a moment, but let's just take a notice about America and why, why Andrew Womack and why those that care about our nation want to focus on this and why it's important for you to understand so that you can tell others as well. Four percent of the people on this planet wake up every morning and call themselves Americans. And yet every year they write more books, more plays, more symphonies, more copyrights, inventions than the other 96 percent combined You know, no nation has blessed the world like this nation has blessed the world. Only four percent. And yet it gives five and a half times as much to global evangelism. The furtherance of the gospel as the entire rest of the world combined. This is the place that people look to for hope when a ship is attacked on the high seas, as happens over 300 times a year. To whom can those people turn? The standard for righteousness in the world, which is America. They know that America will treat them fairly they know that america if they're on a yacht in the caribbean or if they were that tanker from the british that were in the straits of hormuz and attacked by the iranians the only place that they could call for help was the american 327,000 americans wearing the uniform of the united states navy the list goes on and on and that's why we want to make sure that we can't have that stolen out from under us primarily not even by people who don't like america but people don't know what they're doing when they're voting to destroy those things. You know, the second richest spot on Earth is Western Europe, France, Germany, Britain. In America, we have a level below which we will not permit a person to sink. You come to this country, sit down on a park bench, gripe and complain about the country. We will bury you with stamps for food, a roof over your head, a bed to sleep in, unlimited health care for you and anybody you know, education for you and your family. A person who lives in poverty in America. Now, this is done every two years by the Wall Street Journal and the Heritage Foundation. It's called a Rector study. Robert Rector's been doing it for 30 years. He takes the, the gross domestic, the goods and services that are produced by every nation on earth, and he puts them all in a row. A person living in poverty in America is more likely to have a telephone, a television, an air conditioner, an automobile, eats more meat, has more square footage space to live in than the average resident of the second richest spot on earth, which is Western Europe. And of course, it's significantly downhill from there for most of of the world. So how is it that this nation is able to do that? We say, well, Bob, not, not everybody in America is rich. (laughs) I, I know that. But in comparison, you take arkansas which if we want to talk about poverty we could take black and white film and go down and picture somebody sitting on their porch in the ozarks and we say isn't this terrible well a person let's take the state of arkansas the gross domestic product that's gdp the goods domestically produced all of the work that's done in that state the gdp of that state is larger than the sixth largest nation on earth pakistan has over 200 million people And yet all the goods and services from the entire is less than the people in Arkansas live on. Three and a half million Oklahomans produce more wealth than 91 million Filipinos every year. The list goes on and on. The entire 140 million Mexicans, fewer than than the state of Illinois. Now, why is that? Why is that that when you go to the Rio Grande... And you cross the Rio Grande on one side, you have beautiful homes and swimming pools and and country clubs. And on the other side, you have such abject poverty. It's important for us to understand what that is. And economics is the answer. And free enterprise versus socialism is the choice. And so what is socialism? As we said, socialism is the control of the tools of production. You and I cannot go into business in Mexico. If we want to go into the, into the pipeline business, or we want to go into the grocery business, or we want to go into the trucking business, we can't do that. Why? Because government controls that. And this is why in socialist countries, people hate rich people. And we're going to find out in our country, we honor people who are successful because we know something that if you know this, you're qualified to serve in Congress or any position of leadership. Most people in America do not know why some people are rich, but also they don't understand how they get money. And in in free enterprise and socialism, it's entirely different. So under socialism, you get money because the government gives you the right to engage in business. And therefore, poor people don't respect rich people in those countries because they know they got a special deal. We were leaving the it was a congressional delegation. We were walking out of the embassy in Jakarta, Indonesia, and the ambassador shouted just before he left. He said, he said, now, be careful about people that are standing along the side of the highway for seemingly no reason. He said, they'll throw rocks at people in American cars. And the question would be, why is that? Well, here's why. Because an American car is expensive. And who would be able to afford an expensive car in a socialist country like Indonesia? Well, it would be someone who had a relationship with the government and the poor have no way of becoming rich. Therefore, they hate the rich. And that's why America is so different. And that's why we need to understand how a person gets rich. So let's talk about that. Socialism versus free enterprise. Let's say there's a car going down the road out here. And there are only two ways that I can get money out of that person's car. There's only two ways that I can get that person to give me money. One is called free enterprise. And free enterprise is where I lay awake nights figuring out ways to do something good for that person such that they'll slam on their brakes and they'll pull in the driveway and say, oh, you're gonna wash my car and sweep out the carpeting and wash the windows and the dashboard. I'd much rather have that than have this $10 bill. Oh, the pair of shoes, I'd much rather have that than have this $60, a global position, a GPS unit. Why, I'll never get lost again. I'd much rather have this than have the $200. And so under free enterprise, we figure out ways how to do something good for the person such that they voluntarily freely reach in their pocket and make an exchange which at the end of the exchange they are both better off. They are wealthier than they were before. They have created wealth and if if they're not better off, they don't make the exchange. So let's get it again. Let's say a farmer has a stack of wheat and there's a baker and he has 10 empty ovens. And he says, if I had his wheat, I could make flour and donuts in the morning and sell them to the people on the way to work. And the farmer says, I don't need all this wheat. If I had that baker's money, I could put a new roof on a barn and buy a new tractor. And so the two of them come together and they make an exchange, which at the end of the exchange, they are both better off. They have created wealth. And by the way, This is the only way that wealth is created when they voluntarily make an exchange that they are wealthier than they were before. Now the farmer says, I have more wealth than I had before. I have a better deal. I can take this money and hire this fellow over here and he can help me farm this additional 400 acres. And therefore they can create jobs and continue to create wealth. That is called free enterprise. Now I said, there are two ways to get money out of that car going down the road. The other one is called, Socialism. That is, I just come up to the car and I take it. Now, if we do that without government permission, we call that person a criminal. And let's say that uh, the car is stopped and a fellow puts a gun in the window and says, I want 50% of everything in in her purse. Now, question. Has he created any wealth? No. Has he redistributed wealth? (laughs) Yes. From her to him. But the degree to which he is benefited is the degree to which she's diminished. And so no wealth has been created. Therefore, can a criminal create a job? No, he can't. Because he hasn't produced anything. He hasn't created anything. He's only taken what somebody else had. Here's the point. Let's not call him a criminal. Let's call him a councilman or a congressman and they come along and they take the money away from the person now when they do that have they created any wealth no have they redistributed wealth yes from the person that produced it to the person they want to give it to and that that does a couple of things that that are not so handy that is it discourages the person that produced it and it rewards the person that didn't earn it and therefore the whole system begins to fall apart because the people that produce don't like to have it stolen and the people are getting it for nothing. They say, why should I work? And so the people that do that use this word. They talk about wealth distribution, the way that wealth is distributed. You'll hear Bernie Sanders always talks about You hear the mayor of New York, always talking about how there's plenty of wealth in this country it's the way it's distributed is the problem. And he wants to come and redistribute wealth. Well, under socialism, that's where the government comes in and redistributes wealth that people have produced from the people that have it, give it to people that that didn't. The people that produced no longer can produce. And so the country becomes poorer. We've seen that in Cuba. We've seen it in Venezuela. We see it in New York City. We see it in Chicago. We see it in Los Angeles. The degree to which we have more and more socialism is the degree to which there is increased poverty. And so as we get into that, let's, let's take a couple of keys, first of all. What is money? And are we interested in money? You know, some people say, well, I'm really not interested in money. Let me explain to you what money is. Money is a representation of a contribution that I've made to someone else. Bob, that doesn't make much sense. Say it again. Okay, money represents something I did for someone else. So let's say we go into the shoe store and there's a nice pair of shoes there for $80. And, uh, and the, you tell the store clerk, you say, I'd, I'd like to have those shoes. And he basically says this. He said, what have you ever done for anyone that would entitle you to have those shoes? He says, well, I have this. Well, well what, what is that? It's, it's a $20 bill. Well, where did you get it? Well, I got it because I mowed Widow Johnson's yard and Widow Johnson gave me this $20. It is a representation of the contribution that I made. Store owner said, well, that's good. That's, that's, that's nice. That's, you know, that's, that's a good start. But it took, it took two hours to make these shoes. You mowed her lawn in just 20 minutes. So you go back and mow the lawn for her a few more times. You get some more money. You contribute more. You have the representation that proves that you did it and then you can buy more things. Therefore, a person who has money under free enterprise has performed a good or a service for the person such that they voluntarily reached in their pocket, gave them the money. And the more contribution they made, the more blessing they are to the people, the more money they receive. Therefore, under free enterprise, we honor people who are successful because we know that the way that they got the money was because they did good things for people. Under socialism, it's because they had power. And so you'll, you'll notice that when, when people are in talking of socialism, they always want to focus on skin color, or on gender, or on tribe, or some other group, because they want to take power, not because of what they've done for someone under free enterprise, but because they're able to elect themselves to power to take it because of the group that they belong to. And that's where all of this ties in together, as to the spiritual character that when America was founded, it was founded upon the biblical principle that we are equal in God's eyes. And the further you get away from the cross, the further you get from the recognition that God made us, then the more tribal the people become. And then the group wants to have power and that's where socialism comes into play. So in order to have free economics, in order to have free liberty, we also have a spiritual value system. So under free enterprise, the way that I get money is by doing good things for people. But I would like to sometimes increase my contribution to be able to do more for people because a person is rewarded. Here's the principle. The greater the contribution, the greater the reward. The more you can do for a person, the greater the return. And so that's why in America, only 4% of the population of the world has more Nobel Prize winners than the rest of the world combined has all these inventions. Let's take, for example, an app. Now, a vast majority of the apps for the internet or for your cell phone are made in America. Now, why is it that other 96% don't do it? Well, I reminded of a story that the time I was walking out the door, my son said to me he said dad do you have that app that shows what gate you are coming in at the airport and what gates are going out and i said robert what, what do you mean and he opened it up and he showed an app that you could get on your phone and you would type in the flights that you were going to take and then as you landed at the airport as you're taxing they would be able to tell you which gate you're coming in a layout of the airport and you could see where your next gate is it could be across the hall or it could be in another terminal and uh, I, I said, well, that would be very helpful. How much is it? And it was 99 cents. Now, the question would be, why would a person make that? Um, because they didn't want me to get lost? <laughs> no, they didn't care about me. Question, would, is it worth it 99 cents to me to put that on my phone? Yes, yes, it is to, have, to do that. Well, the person that worked on that app, that made it in the hopes that a million of us would download the app, and that person would become a millionaire. So under Free Enterprise, you figure out ways to do things good for people such that they will purchase it because I would rather have the app than have the 99 cents. And that's what Free Enterprise does. Now, here's an interesting part of all that. Do I care if the app was made by, developed by a six foot eight African-American male? or was it made by a five foot one Asian female? The answer is, I care not a whit. Well, what I care about is, does it work? And under free enterprise, you're not rewarded because of who you are. You're rewarded because of what you do for others. And the greater the contribution, the greater the reward. Now, when you want to take things under socialism, where you want to take it because you have the group, then you're always dividing out. You're always talking about a person's skin color, their gender, their height or their, their weight or their something because you get power by the group. Under free enterprise, we're all equal and we figure out ways to do good things and, and to make a great contribution. Let, let me hit that a little bit more. So how does a person become rich under free enterprise? I Remember when computers were only run by really, really smart nerds that had the little green eye shades and their pocket protectors and all, and they they knew how to do that. But uh, a fella came along and he said, I'm going to make a little picture. And it has all of this background in it. And if you just click on the picture, it'll perform it what you want done. And so I'll call it Windows. And if you just click on that window, it'll do it such that computers, rather than being extremely difficult to operate, are now little two-year-olds can operate a computer. Now, what was the principle? The greater the contribution, the greater the reward. The person that figured out how to do that became the richest person on earth because people voluntarily said, I want to have one of those. I want to be able to do that. And computers went from the back room of very large corporations to being carried around on our our pockets. That's how free enterprise blesses people. Socialism doesn't reward people because of what they did. Socialism controls people. Socialism controls the tools. You have to submit to what they are doing And if they're if you're not satisfied, then they will they will control you. They will they will tell you whether or not you can move to a certain place because they control where the lumber goes. They will decide what outfits you can wear as in China and elsewhere They cover your face if you're a woman or or others have to wear face coverings because government tells you now we want to focus on on how that comes about. And I want to give you this idea that is I want you to picture for me a chart and we say on this chart from zero to a hundred. And let's say that hundred represents a hundred percent of the income of any city or any state or any nation, or let's say that it represents a hundred dollar bill and you're going into a store and the most expensive thing in the store is $99 and you have a hundred. That means you're completely free to choose anything in the store. Now let's suppose someone comes along and takes 25% of it away from you and leaves you with 75%. What happens? Well, two things happen. First of all, there are some things you can no longer choose. (laughs) That means that you have less freedom. Uh, The more choices I take away from you, the less freedom you have. Thomas Jefferson said freedom is having choices. Anyone that's ever raised a teenager has had this fight about I want to make my own decisions. So as I take money away from you, you then have fewer choices which means that you have less freedom and you have a lower standard of living. If I take money away from you, you're you're worse off. Anybody would understand this unless they were with the New York Times and they might not see it, but let us suppose someone comes along and takes half of your money. What happens? Even fewer choices, even a lower standard of living. Suppose someone comes along and takes 75, leaves you with 25. Your taxes are, uh, that would be in New York where much of the taxes would be uh, three-fourths of your income and property and state and federal and, and uh, else uh, would be three-fourths of it would go to government and you're left with only 25. Now let us suppose that someone comes along and takes it all. What do we call that person that works all day and keeps absolutely nothing. That person is called a slave. Now, Only two people, as we've learned, only two people can take money away from you. One is a criminal, has a gun, and can take money away from you. And the other is called the government, has a gun, and can take money away from you. But here's the point. And whenever you go to vote, this is what you need to always remember. The impact is the same, whether it's taken from you by government or by a criminal. That is, you go to the pay window, and you pick up your paycheck and you walk across the parking lot. A fella comes up, puts a gun in your ribs and says, I want half of everything that you've got. You go home, we sit with your wife and children. This is how much money we have for food, clothing, and shelter, the kind of vacation we can make, the kind of car we can drive. Or you make it all the way to your pickup truck and you open up the paycheck and you see that half of the money is already gone. That is, Uncle Sam's already been here. The impact is the same. And so here's the principle. The greater the freedom, The more you're allowed to keep, the greater the freedom, the greater the wealth in a country. The greater the government, the cost of burden of government, the greater the government, the greater the poverty. And it only works this way every time. You can make any rich place poor or you can make any poor place rich. When I was in the state legislature in Ohio, as a member of the Ohio legislature, Ohio was number one in new job creation. We created more jobs than any other state in the union. And we elected a governor and said, we can put a stop to this. And so as they began to increase taxes and the burden and regulations, and of course, they're always saying, we're going to tax that guy. We're going to tax that fellow over there. As they did, it it began that people couldn't make a success there. That is where you're running a business. And, and the burden, the cost of running it, you have to pay for the, for the gas and for the heat and the overhead and the workers to come and all. If, if government keeps coming in and taking more and more and more, you find out that, that you can't increase the price of your product that people wanna buy it and so you go out of business. And when you do that by increased government burden, you create unemployment and you create poverty. And, and Ohio went from number one in new job creation to number 49. If you understand this principle, You can make any rich place poor, or you can make any poor place rich. It's just the kind of people that that we elected. When Margaret Thatcher became the Prime Minister of Britain, the socialists had been in control and they'd increased the burden of government so heavily that uh, the country was literally falling apart. And so there was garbage in the streets and and the International Monetary Fund took control of the British pound sterling. That is, they they couldn't even back their own currency. they were in such distress. Margaret Thatcher came in. She reduced the burden of government. She cut taxes. People began to save and invest and and produce more create new jobs and things such that by the time that she left, it was the fourth largest economy in the world. If you understand that, you can make any rich place poor or any poor place rich. When I, when I was young, the richest city in the world, in the world, was a place called Detroit, Michigan. And at the same time as that, the, uh, one of the poorest spots in the world was South Korea. It was third from the bottom. Well, we elected a mayor in, in Detroit who began to focus on race. He began to appoint people based upon their skin color, fire people based upon their skin color. Uh, he began to tax people that were successful such that when people came through town or they went into business there, he took so much money that they couldn't survive. And so now Detroit, the richest city in the world, is now the poorest city north of the Rio Grande River. And what, what happens when when you come up and people take what you have? You leave. And so the population of of Detroit is now as low as it was in 1900. We've, we've lost over 100 years of growth, that city has become poor. South Korea, South Korea, at the same time, in the 1950s, was third from the bottom. But they got freedom after the the Korean War and the Americans showed them how to have free enterprise. and, And Korea is now the 10th richest nation on earth. It has the 10th largest GDP. Now, North Korea is the same heritage, the same climate, the same culture, the same language as South Korea, but North Korea got socialism. It is a socialist country and so it's abject poverty. In fact, uh, over the last decade, 10 percent of the population of North Korea starved. And that's, uh, as you know, the first thing you do is food, clothing and shelter. They can't even do the food part. They eat sticks and they walk bent over and things. South Korea the 10th largest richest nation on earth because they got freedom. Freedom creates wealth and socialism creates poverty. So the question then is how do I increase my contribution? How do I do, do more for other people? Well, one of the best ways that I can do that is to go into business. And that is that I, I think of, of ways that I can help other people. And by doing that, I bring people along and I show them how we we can bless. And here's the, the key ingredient to free enterprise. There is no government planning board deciding where and what people should do, and there is no need for one because the consumer, that's you and I, we voluntarily vote with our dollars every day to reward those who give us a sandwich that we like, that give us the kind of car that we want, the kind of windows that we prefer. We reward those people and Therefore, they prosper so that there is no government planning board to tell them what to do because we daily decide who is going to produce goods in what quantity and in what quality. And the, the greater the freedom, the greater the reward. And so as we conclude this session, we've discussed how the socialism doesn't work. Why is it that some countries are in the condition they are? And yet people are trying to sell that idea to us now. Now, in a few more uh, sessions, I'm going to come back and we're going to tell you why socialism never works. But right now, let's just remind ourselves before we go down this road that after World War II, Stalin wanted to take communism and socialism. As you know, the USSR, the Soviet Union, the Union of Soviet socialist republics. And that was the idea that government could tell you what to do and that was so much better than allowing people just to wander around and decide whether or not they were gonna produce corn or whether or not they were gonna produce wheat, that government should make those decisions for. And it sounded so noble, particularly in college campuses. And, and they told people that this would really be a, a good thing. And yet, when, after 40 years of that, and when the wall came down between the east and the west and we could see on the other side that all of these great, wonderful people, the people in Poland and, and in Romania and Bulgaria and, and Ukraine and uh, all of these wonderful Czechoslovakia, all these great, talented folks, couldn't make a single hairdryer, a TV set, an automobile, made nothing that people would voluntarily buy on the open market. Communist Yugoslavia, they made this thing called the Yugo. And the Yugo is just an absolute piece of junk that when they got freedom, and people could choose voluntarily, reach in their pocket and decide what they could get. The yugo was gone overnight. So in, in discussing what we've, what we've seen is that socialism doesn't work. But the next step that what we'll wanna talk about is the why socialism simply cannot work. And no matter how noble it sounds, that you should always watch for the words that those people use, like they wanna talk about redistribution. And uh, you and I know that, that if you were to drive from Ohio to drive west to Colorado, you go maybe go through Iowa, and on both sides of the road, you would see corn as far as you could see, corn, corn. Then you get to Nebraska, and you see wheat on either side, wheat, 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 mile after mile. And then you get to Colorado or Utah and you see cattle in open fields and, and you can imagine these socialists would stand up and say, you elect me president. It's terrible the way that wheat is distributed in this country. It's terrible the way that corn is distributed in this country. Well, uh, every farmer would look at him like a cow looking at a new gate and that is corn's not distributed. Wheat is not distributed. Wheat is grown. Corn is grown. And free enterprise allows us to create wealth. Wealth is not distributed, wealth is created. And we're gonna talk about how that wealth is created and why is it that the free nations can produce it and the socialist nations can only redistribute what somebody else made. And so until then, this is Bob McEwen and I'm privileged to be a part of this Biblical Worldview effort.
0: We hope you've been blessed by watching this teaching of a biblical worldview on socialism. Biblical Worldview is brought to you by Andrew Womack Ministries and Karis Bible College.
1: Hello, this is Andrew Womack, and I want to invite you to come and sit under the Word of God four hours a day, five days a week for two or three years. I promise you, it would transform your life. You know, God has put it on my heart to make disciples, and the best way I have of doing that is through our Karis Bible College. We not only have our main campus in Woodland Park, Colorado, but we have campuses scattered all over the world. You can go to our website to get information on it, but I promise you, this is a deal changer. Many of you know there's more, and you just don't know how to get there. Come and let us help you discover who you are in Christ and who He is in you. It'll change your life. It's my pleasure to introduce to you E.W. Jackson. He's a bishop, pastor of a church, and he's also grown up in foster care and uh, extreme poverty, and yet he persevered to the point that he graduated from Harvard Law School, a lawyer. He's also been in the Marine Corps. He ran for the U.S. Senate and a Republican nominee for the Lieutenant Governor of Virginia. And uh, he's got a radio show. He's got a number of organizations that he started, STAND, which stands for Staying True to America's National Destiny. And the most important thing, I tell you, E.W. loves God, and he is not afraid to speak the truth, and he is qualified to speak on this subject. And I believe it's going to be a real blessing to you. So stay tuned for Bishop E.W. Jackson as he shares with you about socialism.
3: We're going to discuss one of the most important issues confronting our country, but it's one that is seldom talked about. Uh, We need to talk about it more because we've got to find a solution. And I want to begin by reading a quote. And while I'm reading it, you think to yourself, who might have said this? It reads, The lessons of history confirmed by the evidence immediately before me show conclusively that continued dependence upon relief induces a spiritual and moral disintegration fundamentally destructive to the national fiber. To dole out relief is to administer a narcotic, a subtle destroyer of the human spirit. Now, there must be those among you who thought that that's gotta be Ronald Reagan. Right? Or or perhaps some other conservative president that you can think of. Those words were spoken by Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And Franklin Delano Roosevelt is credited as being the author of the national welfare system in America. We want to talk about welfare today, how it works, what it's intended to accomplish, and unfortunately what it actually accomplishes. Most people are not aware of the fact that the the, the national welfare system really resulted from the depression. Uh, Before the depression, most care of people who needed help was done on the local level. Some government involvement, but a lot of churches, a lot of neighbors helping neighbors. There was no national system to help people who fell on hard times or are having difficulty making ends meet. And to some extent, again, state governments got involved in the process because they were closer to the situation and could better assess what people might need. But there was no federal system. The national welfare system, and most people are not aware of this, the national welfare system actually resulted from the passage of the Social Security Act in 1935. Now I say most people are not aware of that because we think of Social Security not as a welfare system, but as a system of helping people who have worked all their lives and contributed into a pot to draw from that pot in their retirement years when they don't have any income coming in from work. That was the way it was designed. That was the way it was intended. But just as we see in today's politics, even good ideas end up being burdened down with bad ideas because it is expected that the people in Congress, while they may not like the bad ideas, they don't wanna not vote for the good idea and have that hung around their necks as a political albatross. Oh, you didn't vote for this. Well, I didn't vote for it because there were all these other things attached to it. That's often forgotten. And the big issue that they didn't stand with is what is remembered sometimes to their political detriment. Same thing happened with the Social Security Act. The Social Security Act included a national welfare system. And isn't it amazing that even Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the author of the New Deal, knew or perhaps was pandering to those who knew that there was something fundamentally wrong with a system that rewarded people for not working. And that that gave them the sustenance that they needed to live without requiring anything of them. He called it a narcotic, a subtle destroyer of the human spirit. That started in 1935. And of course, it's only grown. Uh, Approximately $3 trillion was spent on the Great Society program of Lyndon Johnson Today, we spend $1.2 trillion on welfare systems. And I'm not talking about social security folks. I'm talking about welfare, Uh, a variety of programs that we have in our country now to help poor children, to help single uh, women who are raising children, to help with housing for the poor. There's a whole system now that costs the American taxpayer $1.2 trillion a year. Now, as Christians, we are required to show love and compassion to our neighbor. We're required to to do what we can to help others. You know, the Bible says that if your neighbor comes to you and and is in need of, of food and clothing, and you say, be warmed and fed and send him on his way. And you don't give him the things that he needs. What good have you done him? So Jesus makes clear that we're supposed to be generous. We're supposed to be givers. We're supposed to be people of compassion, people who care about our neighbors. Here's the distinction that we all need to understand. When I give to someone out of the goodness of my heart, because that person is in need. And frankly, out of the grace that God has shown me, because I don't want to imply that somehow I'm so good, but out of the grace that God has shown me and instilled in me, and I, I give to others, that's true compassion. But when the government orders me, or by force takes from me what I've earned to give to others that it considers to be worthy of what I've earned, That's not compassion, that's compulsion. And this is where many people on the political left have gotten completely off track, which is why the data tends to show that people on the political left who believe that government ought to do everything tend to be, generally speaking, tend to be very stingy with their own money. Whereas Christians who really believe in the principle of personal responsibility, that every person to do for his or herself tend to be the most generous people in the country because we want to help others, we want to give. But once the federal welfare system was created, more and more the need for individuals to step in with compassion was substituted with government stepping in with compulsion and with Concepts like wealth redistribution. We've got to take from those who have to give to those who have not. Here again, when I stick my hand in my own pocket and take out something to give to someone because I care about that person, love that person, wanna help that person, that's, that's virtue, that's great. But when someone else sticks their hand in my pocket and takes out of it to give to someone they consider to be worthy, That's not virtue, that's vice, that's theft. And the whole welfare system, sadly, is built on that principle. Now, here again, people will say, well, that's selfish and and you don't wanna help others. No, because we wanna look at the consequences of the way this system has worked so that we can really determine, are we helping others or are we in fact hurting them? Franklin Delano Roosevelt, even though I think we credit him with being the architect of the national welfare system that plagues us today, he himself pointed out that it was very, very dangerous to turn people into dependents, Because once that happens, you sap them of their own sense of personal responsibility and initiative and ambition and desire to accomplish something in life. And unfortunately we have done that in a horrible way. These are devastating statistics. The left often points to, and by the way, welfare is something that has hurt communities across the board. I don't want you to think that this is, this is racial, but because there's a disproportionate number of Americans of African ancestry uh, who are poor, right now the number is about 33%, about a third of the black community lives in poverty, then obviously the national welfare system is going to have a disproportionate impact on them. But it has a terrible impact on any community that ends up depending upon it to any large extent. And the most devastating impact it has had in my view is the destruction of the family. It has destroyed families from every demographic and every background. In 1965, when we began to to measure these things, um, we were able to take a look back about 10, 15 years in spite of poverty, in spite of much more invidious and open racism in various parts of the country. 85% of black children, some put the number at 87% of black children were born in married, two-parent monogamous families and raised in those families. From 1950 to 1965, the number of children born out of wedlock increased by only 2% in the black community, by only 2%. 1965, the Great Society programs were passed. The welfare system took on a, a gargantuan scope that it hadn't had even during the depression. And at that point, it begins to implement policies that have have had a devastating impact on families across the board. Here again, disproportionately impacting the black community, but it's impacted Americans of every background, of every ancestry, Americans of European descent, Americans of Hispanic descent, Americans of African descent. Anywhere a community gets caught up in the welfare system, it has devastating consequences on the family. So 1965, 85%, about 85% of black children born in wedlock. Again, there are some studies that say, well, no, it was probably about 75%. Fine, take 75%. Within a matter of years, that number was halved from 25% of children born out of wedlock. If you want to use the 75% born in married families in 1965, say 25% to by 1990, 64% of black children are born out of wedlock. Today, and it varies to some extent from community to community, for a number of years, the number was 72%. I am now reading literature that's saying it's up to 75% of children born in the black community are born out of wedlock. Fully 70% of children in the black community are raised in single parent female headed households. Now, by the way, to show that this impact has not simply been on the black community, in 1965, only 3% of white children were born out of wedlock. The number is now somewhere between 33, 35%. And here again, in some communities, in some areas worse. For example, in Richmond, the number of black children born out of wedlock is 80%. And you say, well, wait a minute, this is what the left has been saying all along. Well, that that has nothing to do with welfare. That goes back to slavery. Folks, that is an absolute lie. It's simply a lie. It is simply something that is used to try to cover the devastating impact of the welfare system on the black community and others. When slavery ended, the black family was largely intact. Now we don't have exact numbers and people will say, well, yeah, but, but families were broken up by slavery and so forth. That is simply not true. Uh, studies done by scholars like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams have shown that yes, about 16% of black families during slavery were broken up. But remember that there was a tremendous incentive to hold families together because it made people happier it made them less likely to try to escape. It made them less likely to be recalcitrant and rebellious because taking away somebody's wife or husband or children was likely to have a devastating impact on their attitude. And slave masters soon learned that it's so much easier to deal with them if their families are intact because they make for happier, more contented people. Uh, many of the escapes from slavery were escapes by people attempting to go find the loved one that had been taken away from them. So about 84% of black families remained intact during slavery. Now I'm a perfect example of that. My great grandparents were slaves and sharecroppers in Orange County, Virginia, and my great grandfather, Gabriel, married my great grandmother, Eliza, while they were slaves. When slavery ended, they remained together and they raised my grandfather, all of his siblings, and they remained married until my grandfather died in 18, my great grandfather, I should say, died in 1884. They remained married. And that was the case across the board. In fact, for those who had been separated when slavery ended, they they often went searching for and found their estranged wife or husband and reconstituted their families. Black families remained intact in the worst circumstances imaginable in slavery. And then after slavery and after reconstruction, which gave us a a, a respite from some of the racial oppression that was going on, particularly in the South, they still remained together. And think about this, a hundred years later, if you use the low number, 75% of black children are born and raised in two parent monogamous families. That's a hundred years after slavery is over. That takes you right through Jim Crow, right through the worst circumstances of the racial climate in our country. And yet the black family remained intact. And in 1965, it's like falling off a cliff. You see the decimation happening. Well, well, why, how does the welfare system create this? Well. The welfare system incentivized single parent households by giving women more money if there was no man in the home. And so if you had more children, you got more money. If there's no husband in the home, no no father in the home, you got more money. And of course, once you start that cycle and men lose their sense of worth because they're not needed, the government takes care of it. There are plenty of other draws and, and attractions for their time, their attention, the streets, look, and I'm not saying welfare is responsible for all of this. I really do believe that the data proves that it's responsible for most of it. But remember too, that after World War II, there was a great migration of black people from the South. Remember that up until I think uh, World War II and and and, and uh, that period, ninety percent of Black Americans lived in the South. Ninety percent. There are very few Black Americans living in the North, or the West, or other parts of the country. With that Great Migration, they left agrarian society and moved into urban society, and of course, that has its own temptations and problems and issues, and and people were facing a lot of choices that frankly they didn't have in a more rural community. But welfare only exacerbates that. Because now a woman doesn't need a man in the home, she can get her subsistence through the government and the man, frankly, is in a position to run the streets. And there've been attempts over the years to try to correct that by in some cases locking meant up for non-support. Uh, I, I'm not sure what that accomplishes because they certainly can't support their family while they're locked up. But I understand the, 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 the motivation behind it because there's the sense that this person is not fulfilling his responsibility to his own family and is putting that responsibility on us, on, the, on society at large, and there ought to be some, some punishment. There ought to be some consequences for that. I'm just not sure that that worked. So you've got men, instead of working and taking care of their families, and they're off doing other things, because after all, the woman can be taken care of without that. And here again, that happened, it's happened in the Hispanic families, it's happened in white families, in black families, it's happened across the board, and it's been happening for a long, long time. when my children were in elementary school, uh, before we took them out of elementary school and put them in Christian schools, uh, we, we kind of did an informal poll. And we learned that even though the school was predominantly Americans of European ancestry, uh, because the community was, uh, it was a suburban community. We, we didn't live in the city. We found that the overwhelming majority of children in that classroom had no fathers in the home. That was a, a suburban community. So this stuff, th- these, these horrendous policies that I have no doubt for some were very well-intentioned. For some, I think they, they, had, they had very good motives, but they forgot the law of unintended consequences, which means you better think about what the long-term impact of the policy will be, not just how it will make you feel. It might make you feel good, but it could have devastating impact on the people who you claim to want to help. And that's exactly what happened in this case. And it's, it's, it's helped create this major problem we have in our country, a family breakdown. And you and I, taxpayers, are paying $1.2 trillion to perpetuate a system that is really undermining the most fundamental institution of our culture, which is the family. Now, I said, I think many people were very well-intentioned and I'm not ascribing evil motives to everybody who's been involved in this process, but we do know from the record that Lyndon Johnson and his Great Society program had a very demeaning attitude toward black folks and saw the Great Society program as a means of corralling them politically. And as he said, making sure that they would vote for Democrats for the next 200 years. And he didn't say it in nearly as genteel the way I've just said it. So not everybody who did this thought this was going to be some great, compassionate, liberating thing to help people. He understood the political implications. And I think he understood exactly what Roosevelt understood. We can make them dependent and we can control them for the foreseeable future. And sadly, that's exactly what's happened. The Democrat machine is built largely on the welfare system. Because you have people captive in welfare type housing projects, poor neighborhoods, there's really nowhere for them to go. You're, they're dependent upon you to make sure that you perpetuate uh, these subsistence payments that they're getting. And, and you promise that you're gonna save them from the racists who, who want to take everything from them. And it really is part of the political machine that is keeping a whole group of people captive to poverty and crime and violence and decrepit housing uh, and poor education. And all of the indices that we all see in the news every day happening across our country in the inner cities of our nation. But nothing I've said to you really captures the most devastating consequence because the most devastating consequence is happening to the children of these homes that are now fatherless and have been fatherless now for, what? Two generations since the 1960s, more and more and more and more and more children raised without fathers in the home. Now, I think that I am emblematic of both the problem and the solution. When I was born, my mother and father were breaking up. Their marriage was pretty much over. And at the age of uh, 17, 18 months, Uh, I was placed in foster care. My father was working full-time, couldn't take care of me, and my mother was simply nowhere to be found. Um, And I ended up in foster care, and I was in foster care for 10 years, up until the age of 10. By the time I was in those adolescent years, nine, 10 years old, I was already in a gang. I was already committing petty crimes. Uh, I was already ignoring any educational responsibilities at all. I, I went to school when I went, when I felt like it. And my gang and I, we hung out in the streets instead of going to school. And the people that we admired in our neighborhood were the people who had gone to jail and come out buffed and tough. And we weren't looking up to doctors and lawyers. We weren't looking up to astronauts. We weren't even looking up to, to sports figures. I mean, they were distant from us, but it was that guy who had been to jail and done hard time, who came out and paraded up and down the streets and had people look and say, oh yeah, he went to the penitentiary. That's the person that we looked up to. It, it was it, it's It's cultural pathology, I call it, when you have a situation in which The person who ought to be your primary role model, your dad is not there to show you what a real role model is. Now I knew who my father was, unlike some, you know, we've got people in our country now, they've never met their fathers. They don't even know who they are. I knew my father, he visited with me. Um, And I, I want to desperately live with my father. And I can tell you that what I remember by the age of nine and 10, you know, you, you have enough self awareness to, to know how you're feeling. And I, I can look back on that and share that with you. I remember feeling unloved. I remember feeling that, well, there must be something wrong with me because my mother and father aren't here to take care of me. And so I don't know what's wrong with me, but I know one thing, nobody's going to tell me what to do. If my mother and father aren't here to tell me what to do, nobody's gonna tell me what to do. The police aren't gonna tell me what to do. My foster parents aren't gonna tell me what to do. Nobody's gonna tell me what to do. And one day when I was 10 years old, I'd almost failed out of fifth grade. I remember the conference that my foster mother had with my fifth grade teacher, where she was explaining that I'd been in school so seldom that year that they might be forced to keep me back. I'm I'm not sure why I was, was not kept back. But my father showed up that summer and I was hanging out. I can remember it as if it were yesterday. I was hanging out on the street with my friends and he rolled down the window of his car and, and caught my eye and pointed at me, told me, come here. And when I went up to the car, my father said this to me. He said, you've always said that you wanted to live with me. Cause whenever I would see my father, I would say, well, dad, why can't I live with you? Why can't I live with you? So a son, you know, you, you just can't. He said, but you've always said that. He said, you still want to go live with me? I said, yeah, dad. He took me to my foster home, told my foster mother that he was taking me to live with him. And I won't go into the details, but it was a terrible scene because she became hysterical because imagine she had raised me from 18 months, 17, 18 months. I was her baby. But my father said, if, if I don't do something, we're going to lose my son because he saw what was going on. And folks, literally overnight, my life changed. My father imposed discipline on me. He gave me a vision. And by the way, I don't mind saying, my father never instilled with me this, in, in me this sense of hopelessness that America's a racist place and you can't make it in America. Nobody can do anything in America. My father used to say to me, son, this is a country where you can do anything you wanna do, but you've gotta make it happen yourself. Nobody owes you anything, you gotta earn it. I expect you to do well in school. I expect you to stay out of trouble. I stopped hanging out with my gang. I I had limits on on how far I could leave from the home without his explicit permission and awareness of where I was going, whereas before I'd run the streets and went, went, went wherever I wanted to. And folks, overnight, my life changed. This issue of fatherlessness is bringing us devastating consequences. I've already told you, I felt unloved. I was rebellious. I was angry. And in that sense, I've got the utmost sympathy and empathy for these kids that are running the streets right now in gangs, because I know where that anger comes from. I once had it. And this welfare system that we've created, you have to say this in just these explicit terms. It has been and continues to create the monsters that are plaguing the streets of our inner cities, hurting many people who are just trying to live, the law-abiding citizens, kids on their way to school getting shot in the crossfire, women out trying to shop, having bullets fly through their cars and kill them and kill their children. Do you realize in just the year 2020, in just the year 2020, more black men were killed in street violence across the cities of our country than were killed in all 13 years of the Iraq war. In fact, twice as many in one year. The the inner city doesn't have a police problem. It has a fatherless problem. This is just, A few of the statistics as to what this is accomplishing, and this is coming from the Bureau of the Census and from the Center for Disease Control and a number of other sources. But fatherless homes produce 63% of youth suicides. In other words, 63% of the youth who commit suicide come from fatherless homes. 90% of runaways come from fatherless homes. 85% of all children treated for behavioral disorders are from fatherless homes. 71% 71% of all high school dropouts are from fatherless homes. 75% of adolescent drug addicts, 70% of juveniles in youth correctional facilities, 85% of all youth offenders who graduate to adult prison are from fatherless homes. 60% of the prison population is from fatherless homes. 80% of convicted rapists, from fatherless homes, 72% of adolescent murderers, fatherless homes. Children from fatherless homes are five times more likely to commit suicide, 10 times more likely to abuse drugs, 20 times more likely to suffer from serious mental illness, 20 times more likely to do hard prison time, and 14 times more likely than a child from a two parent family to commit the crime of murder. That's what the welfare system in America has produced. And here again, that applies not only to the black community but it applies to every community in this country that is being devastated by the consequences of incentivizing men staying out of the home and women living off the government. Now, that's the circumstance we are in right now. And by the way, it, it has political implications as I've already explained, because the machine politics of the Democrat party really depend upon this. That's why you don't hear of any reforms being instituted to uh, require work or figure out how to rebuild a family and create stable homes in these communities. You don't hear that because it serves a certain political class. You know, Bill Clinton, Democrat, to his credit, reinstituted work requirements for welfare while he was president. He famously said, the era of big government is over. Now, I don't know whether he was pandering to the fact that he had to deal with the Republican Congress or whether he really meant that in his heart, I don't know, but he was right. Barack Obama came in and, re- and eliminated all work requirements. Now the Bible says from a Christian perspective, if any would not work, neither should he eat. That's pretty straightforward. And word also says he that does not care for his own household is, has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. So the Bible puts a very high premium on personal responsibility. Anyway, I say to you, Bishop Jackson, but what do we do when, when a woman has no one to take care of her and she's got young children to take care of How in the world do we deal with that other than sending her a welfare check? Well, I I think we've got to figure out a way to disengage the federal government from the process. And that can't happen overnight. I realize that, but here's part of what is required. Number one, I don't believe that anyone who is able-bodied in the United States of America, male, Female, Nobody who is able-bodied in the United States of America should be on a perpetual dependence on a welfare check. They should be required to work their way out of it. Everybody ought to have to work. So what about a woman who's just had a baby? Fine, give her some time to take care of her baby. But then we need to, we, we need to do everything that we can to support going to work. Other women do it. Uh, my wife is particularly committed to this idea that women should stay home and take care of their children when they're young. And I agree with her. But you can work part-time. Let, let's, let's figure out a way to uh, provide daycare for those who want to work but all we are doing is perpetuating intergenerational poverty. Now I realize these things are not easy because look, it's very easy to create these systems. (laughs) It's very hard to work your way out of them. But that's number one, there's got to be a work requirement for any able-bodied person. Now people who are mentally uh, ill and they can't, they simply can't take care of themselves and by the way, there are a lot of people who are handicapped who still can work. <laughs> and those people ought to be required to work, not out of a sense of hardness toward them, but out of a sense of wanting them to experience their own human dignity. The sense that they can contribute to their own sense of well-being. I mean, there there are programs now uh, that put people to work who suffer from you know, a variety of, of mental illnesses or, uh, or handicaps, but they're able to do something, let them do it. But we can't perpetually take care of people because in my view, it is morally wrong. In fact, I have to say this folks, and I know this is going to seem a bit hard or harsh, but I, but, but I believe this with every fiber of my being because I've witnessed it. I just described what my life was, was like growing up. I grew up in the inner city. My wife and her family lived in the projects. My, my, my mother-in-law uh, got a job as a practical nurse. My father-in-law went to work for Sunship Building and Dry Dock Company. They worked their way out of the projects. They bought a home. Nobody did it for them. They did it on their own, but when I was growing up, I knew many families that were in the projects all their lives because they had housing that was practically free and they got a check that allowed them to do it. In fact, I dare say folks, I dare say, and here again, this is not based on some book I've read. This was my life that the whole welfare system was supporting drug dealers because some of the biggest drug dealers in the community were living in the projects. Their woman collecting a welfare check, them not acknowledging that they were actually staying in the place and they were dealing drugs out of the project uh, apartment. We're perpetuating a monstrosity. You gotta work. Everybody who is able-bodied needs to work. Here's the second thing I would suggest. And here again, folks, please understand where I'm coming from. Uh, I am not a scholar who has simply read a bunch of books on this stuff. I have read a lot of books on it, and and I do study the issue because I do wanna know what the scholarly material says. Uh, And I, I just think people like Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams have an immense amount to contribute if, if we would lay aside the politics and just listen to these, these men, and there are others as well, they just happen to be two of my favorites, but listen to these men who have written so powerfully and eloquently and cogently and compassionately about these issues. This is not about being hard on people or being against people. This is about being for people, wanting the very best for them. What we ought to want and what we ought to have as a system that wants people to fulfill their highest potential, that wants them to, to get out there and take the gifts that God has given them and put them to work. see, this is part of the problem too, because the architects of this new modern welfare system, generally speaking, and here again, forgive me for the generalization. I realize there are probably exceptions, but generally speaking, they're godless. They don't believe that we ought to depend upon God for anything. The government is God, the government will do it. And as a result, they don't understand that each human being, including that welfare mother, who's had four children and no men who stepped up to take responsibility, has gifts and talents and capabilities that need to be unleashed and can make a contribution to our country, to our community, to our family, to the world. One of my best friends is Star Parker. Star Parker started out as a welfare mom. Star Parker now runs one, of the, runs one of the premier think tanks in the country, Cure. And she is helping to develop solutions to these problems because here again, she like me, is she's not so much a scholar, even though she has a think tank now, but she's experienced this. She knows what this is. And she knows this is not compassion. This, this is captivity and that people need to be released from it. Um, I knew people when I was growing up and their fathers were not there to rein them in. Uh, one of my dearest friends, Herman Cooper, I don't know whether Herman Cooper is out of prison now or not but he went to jail for killing another friend of mine. I wasn't close to this guy, but, but went to jail for killing him. Herman Cooper had been a member of my street gang. We knew the people around us who were, were taking advantage of the dole, thinking that they were quote unquote getting over when in fact they were going under. Now, my dad, uh, I, I, I can't give him enough credit, I really can't, because even though he lived in that world, God somehow gave him a wisdom beyond his education, um, even beyond his level of spirituality at the time. My father came to Jesus Christ later in life, but he still believed in God, he just wasn't a servant of Jesus Christ. He he hadn't surrendered his life to Jesus Christ, been born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, but he respected and honored God. And my father used to say this to me. He used to say, son, nobody owes you anything. You work for what you want. You go out there and make a life for yourself. And he used to warn me, he said, and look, you're going to come across people who will be against you for whatever reason. He never got into this obsession about, Oh son, they won't let you, the white man won't let you and the government won't let you and the system. Won't let you and all of that. He never got, he said, look, there will be people against you for whatever reason. And he said, now you go over them, you go under them, you go around them or you go through them, but you don't let anybody stop you from accomplishing what you want to try to achieve in life. He said, and this is the thing I always want you to remember. And I never forgot this. He said, there will be people who see that you're trying to make something of your life and help will come from unexpected places. People you never expected to help you will help you. People you never thought would do anything for you will come alongside you. And I, I, I didn't understand it at the time, but my father was teaching me the goodness of America. He was teaching me that, boy, this country has its problems. Yes. But it's a place of opportunity and hope, no matter who you are. And I, I later learned he, where this, this optimism came from. My father was a hobo during the depression and, you know, hobos weren't homeless people or, or bums as we would refer to them in some in colloquially now, but hobos were actually people who were out of work as a result of the depression and went, and rode the freight trains from town to town, trying to find work. And my father would get on those trains with people from every background. I mean, it it didn't matter. The color of their skin didn't matter. They were all in the same boat. They would get off the train sometimes. And my father said we would sometimes cross the yards of people who were doing better as we were heading into town, trying to find some kind of day work or something. And my father said there were people who would put, they knew we were coming and they would put sandwiches out. He said, I never had anybody say, oh no, we don't feed you, you're black. They knew we were all Americans, we were all in trouble and there was a camaraderie among us. See, people can always point to the problems, they can point to the imperfections, they can point to the horrible mistakes that have been made in our country because we're human beings. But how about pointing to the virtue and pointing to the the, the glory and the nobility that our country's also demonstrated? As I didn't realize it then, but my father was instilling me a sense that you live in a wonderful place and don't get focused on the bad people who might want to do bad things. Remember, there are good people who want to do good things. And if they see you want to do good things too, guess what? They'll help you. They'll be with you. We've got a welfare system that's based on the idea of hopelessness and despair. Oh, there's no opportunity for you. Nobody will let you. I met with a group of young people when I was a pastor, uh, young guys who were kind of, they were in the streets. And I'm serious folks, here again, th- these are my experiences, not what I read in a book. And, and, and you know what they said to me? They said, well, we have to deal drugs because the white man won't let us do anything else. And I looked in the eye, I said, really? I said, so how does that work? Is he going home with you to stop you from doing your homework? And when you try to do your homework, he slams the book and says, I'm not letting you work. I'm not letting you learn. And they kind of looked at me. (laughs) I said, is he stopping you from going out and looking for a job? Is he stopping you from shoveling snow in the winter for your neighbor for a few bucks? I mean, explain to me how it works. And they just kind of looked at me as if I had two heads because they they didn't know what they were talking about. They've heard that garbage from Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton and a bunch of race baiting hustlers and they've imbibed it and it becomes an excuse for every kind of of destructive behavior you want to engage in. We've got to to require that anybody who is gonna collect welfare has gotta work. And here's the other thing I've mentioned because I'm getting close to time, I'm gonna have to stop. We've got to train young men who father children, and I'm not sure how we do this. Uh, here again, folks, I can cite you instances. I could could point the finger at particular people, I'm not gonna name names, who have multiple children, men who have multiple children and aren't taking care of any of them. So here again, this stuff is not theoretical. And these poor children are growing up fatherless fatherless, and often the people doing that, their fathers are in prison or have just ignored them. We've got to start retraining men how to be fathers. When I say we, I mean, we as churches have got to start retraining men how to be fathers. We as a society have got to start putting a premium on fatherhood. I mean, all of this gender bending craziness that is going on has got to stop. How can you teach a man to be a father when the first thing you want to tell him is he doesn't even know whether he's a man? Or he, 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 he might be a woman on the inside. I mean, this, this, is, this is craziness. And for, for communities like the black community, Hispanic community, which also has a problem, not as bad as the black community, but it has a problem too with fatherless homes, to to be instilling this kind of stuff in communities that so desperately need to have fathers in the home is like committing suicide. Well, look, I I hope this has been helpful to you. I hope it's been encouraging to you. Um, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to solve these problems. I, I believe that the government is going to have to take the back seat and watch the private sector do it But unfortunately, I see the corporate world buying into a lot of political correctness that is the antithesis of what is really needed in these inner cities. Pouring money in is not the answer. There needs to be cultural transformation. And that's got to come through the churches. Churches have got to step up and stand up and speak up. Look, I am a product of a dad who loved me enough to step in and take me out of a situation that was going to lead to my destruction. It wasn't a welfare system. It wasn't a government program. It wasn't midnight basketball. It was a loving father. And if we can get fatherhood to take front and center again in our country and get men taking responsibility for their children, marrying women before they fire their children, a lot of the societal problems that we're having today would completely disappear. And the numbers of people that we have in prison today would begin to decline dramatically because the problem is really not racism. The problem is the breakdown of the family. And by the way, only Christians and churches know that because we know that God created the family as the primary place for teaching people how to live. That's what we need to come back to. And so I I hope that you'll find a way that you can get involved in this effort because it may be the very thing that is ultimately going to save the United States of America. God bless you.
0: We hope you've been blessed by watching this teaching of a biblical worldview on socialism. Biblical Worldview is brought to you by Andrew Womack Ministries and Karis Bible College. Well, I hope that you uh, enjoyed those episodes from Andrew Wommack's series, Biblical Worldview. Uh, the first one by Bob McEwen, and the second one by Bishop E. W. Jackson. And I, you know, we have four installments of this product that are available to uh, to purchase on awmi.net. Again, they're foundational issues: socialism, racism, and sexuality. And uh, and there's more to come. I really want to encourage you to pick up your copies of Biblical Worldview today. Um, we we look around at our culture, we look around at our society, and we feel like we're losing our country, that the world is going to heck in a handbasket, and And there's a reason for that. And the reason is that we are not discipling the nation. We are not discipling people. We are not instilling in them God's word when it applies to every, as it applies to every subject. We are not teaching a biblical worldview and the statistics on the, on the generations that are behind us, the millennials, and then the Gen Z's or Gen X's and Gen Z's, the, the stats are even lower and worse. We have got to do something about this. And I wanna challenge you today that the, the answer begins with you. I wanna invite you to get the these series, not only for your own personal study to equip you, but so that you can start a small group in your home or in your church. And you can also uh, provide it to your pastor and encourage him to use this material to teach and to preach uh, so that your church can be equipped with a biblical worldview. So order your copy today on awmi.net. Each uh, section contains a, on average about 10 lessons and comes with a study guide so that you can follow along and also be equipped to teach others. So go to awmi.net today and order your copy of Biblical Worldview. I am 100% confident that you will be glad you did. Thanks for watching today. God bless you and your family and be sure to tune in for tomorrow's Truth and Liberty live call-in show.